The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Bright Vibe Podcast. At Bright Vibe, we believe everyone deserves to be happy. But in today's world, everywhere you turn, there is division and negativity. At Bright Vibe, we have created a global movement to bring 8 million people together who are inspired to live bright, live bold, and share bright vibes. Alone, it can be hard to change, but together we can change the world. Welcome to the Bright Vibe Podcast. All right. We are excited to have Dr. Kristen Neff on the podcast today. And we're doing something a little different. This is actually, you are the first person to do a live podcast in our new platform. So I thank you for being courageous and saying yes. When we said, hey, do you want to go live? And you were like, yes, I want to go live. So I appreciate that. Sure. Yes. Yes. So this is the Bright Vibe podcast, and we are actually streaming it live in the, in the Bright Vibe app. Um, and so for those of you listening to the podcast, that's something new we're doing. And so we'd love to have you join us um, in the bright, just download, just go to B-R-I-T-E-V-I-B-E um, in the uh, app store, Bright Vibe in the app store. And then you can come on and actually ask our guests questions. So obviously most of you listening by podcast, this has already been recorded and you're hearing it after the fact. But if you would like to start uh, interacting with our guests, because we have some wonderful guests on here, uh, we'd certainly invite you to come ask questions. So, and then for those of you tuning in live, um, you can use the Q&A section at the bottom and ask questions. And I'm sure Kristen would love to answer live questions. I know it's a lot of fun when you get to answer live questions. So uh, this is something new for us and we appreciate you uh, being a part of it. So I'd like to read your bio. So Dr. Kristen Neff received her doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley and is currently an associate professor of education psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. During Kristen's last year of graduate school, she became interested in Buddhism and has been practicing meditation and the insight meditation tradition ever since. While doing her postdoctoral work, she decided to conduct research on self-compassion, a central construct of Buddhist psychology, and one that had not yet been examined empirically. Kristen is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, creating a scale to measure the construct almost 20 years ago. In addition to writing numerous academic articles and books, and book chapters on the topic, she is the author of Self-Compassion, the, power prove, the Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. And her latest book is Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. So with all that said, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Matt. Yes, yes, yes. So you are an expert on compassion, something I think that, that as a uh, society, we're not real great at and we need a lot more of. And then your latest book, um, Fear Self-Compassion, seems like that takes that almost, when I hear the word fierce, it's like to the next level of compassion. It's like, I'm compassionate, I'm going to be fiercely compassionate. So what, what does that mean? And kind of what's the book about? Yeah, well, so there are really two sides of compassion for self and other. There's the side of compassion, which is more the um, accepting, nurturing side of compassion, more, more tender so if you think of a you know, parent toward their newborn child or um, with ourselves and we're upset or feeling inadequate, it's a very accepting, kind, warm, 
mindset where we soothe ourselves, we kind of re remind ourselves we aren't alone, we reassure ourselves. Um, but just like with a parent, sometimes we need to unconditionally, we always need to unconditionally accept our children, mm -hmm. but we don't want to unconditionally accept their behaviors or the situations they find themselves in. Right. So there's also fear self-compassion, which I like to term mama bear self-compassion. It doesn't matter <laughs> your gender identity or if you have kids, it's like this fierce protective energy mm -hmm. that we also um, show, show towards those we love, including ourselves. So in other words, self-compassion isn't only about acceptance. It's um, saying no to people who are, who are crossing your boundaries or maybe um, you know, infringing on your rights or harming you in some way. It's about providing for your needs. Again, taking action and saying, you know, my needs count too. I'm going to spend at least some of my time and resources on making sure that I'm fulfilled in addition to, not instead of others. And then really importantly, motivating change. You know, it's not compassionate to keep doing behaviors that are harmful to yourself or others or to, or to be in a situation like a job or a relationship. It's really toxic, not good for you. And so this is the fierce action side of compassion, which I... Giving it a name just highlights it because most people think only of the soft accepting side. So it reminds people that compassion mm -hmm. can be really um, fierce sometimes when it needs to be. And why do you think, and, and, and I'm going to throw myself into this group of people I'm talking about, but why do you think it's so hard uh, from the studies and from your own research and background, why do you think it's so hard for people to be compassionate for themselves? Uh, well, there's actually two really good reasons. One is um, evolutionary it's in our biology. The other one is cultural. Mm -hmm. um, so evolutionarily, uh, the, we have a care system. We have a system that's designed to promote feelings of compassion, but it's, it really evolved for others, right? How we relate to our children or other group members. Um, typically, when we're suffering in some way, which means we're threatened, right? Maybe we notice something in ourselves we don't like, we feel inadequate or something challenging happens. Um, evolutionarily, when, when we're the one threat and we go into fight, flight, or freeze mode, right? Kind of, mm -hmm. you might say freak out mode. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we turn that inward and we fight ourselves with self-criticism, thinking that, you know, somehow it's gonna either beat other people to the punch or maybe get, get, get ourselves to change so that we will be safe. Or um, we, we flee into shame and feelings of isolation, kind of like isolating ourselves from other group members or else we freeze and get stuck. We kind of you know, ruminate and we get stuck in our negative emotions. This is a survival instinct. You know, If your friend, for instance, if your close friend loses their job, you care, but you aren't so immediately threatened. Mm. So it's easier for you to tap into the care mode. So we're kind of doing a little hack with self-compassion. We're tapping into something that evolved to care for others. Mm -hmm. and we're doing a U-turn and using it for ourselves. So that, that's one, we come by that very honestly. And the other thing is our culture doesn't promote it, right? Especially Western culture. It has all these myths about self-compassion, which are totally false. You know, we think it's weak or we think it's going to make us lazy or that it's selfish or self-indulgent. The research shows very clearly it's not true, but our culture thinks it's true. And therefore we kind of, we aren't really told that this is a good thing to practice. Yeah. And I can see that just historically, when you look back at kind of our roots and the founding of the country and, and yeah. just this whole uh, kind of, I don't know, pioneer attitude that the whole country, I think, has inherited. It was always about being uh, self-sacrificing and sacrifice yeah. for your country and, you know, ask, up and don't complain. Right. And all that. Yeah. Yeah. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country type. I mean, it, there's just been, it seems like historically sacrifice was kind of interwoven in our, the tapestry of, of the United States. And, yeah. 
and I, so I could see how it kind of gets into our, uh, you know, kind of our inherited DNA. But um, what people don't realize, of course, is that the more compassion flows inward, the more you have available to flow outward. Right, of course. The more yeah. you're able to give to others without burning out. Right. We, we forget that. We think it's a zero-sum game, so it either has to be you or me. You know, it can't be both, which actually isn't true. <laughs> well, right. So it's kind of like love. The more you, you know, that's the, one of yeah. the resources that the more you give, the more you have, right? Exactly. And so self-compassion, I think, is in that love and compassion are kind of cousins there, if you, I they think, are. right? And yeah, so the, you might say one way of thinking of what compassion is, is the ability to hold pain with love and warmth, mm. whether it's our own or that of others, to be present with it, with kindness, with care, with warmth. Um, and so love is absolutely part of it, even though I, I don't measure that on my scale, but, but it's there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's next. Maybe this is the catalyst for your for your net for your well, next love, book love is a tricky word though because i mean yes. self-love could also mean narcissism right it's hard to oh, this yeah. is kind of it for, for i'm a researcher so from a right. scientific point of view it's a little tricky the word love that's why i don't use it but mm. of course it's there <laughs> yes yes and so so it's easy to say be self-compassionate how do we actually do it right yeah, well, the last 10 years, um, I've been working with Chris Germer, who's a, a colleague, a, a clinical psychologist. We've been developing ways for people to be more self-compassionate. We have a, a training program developed in it. We have a training program, lots of empirical support for it. I think there's like 35 practices and exercises you can do. So, there, you know, the thing is, it's not rocket science because we, we're used to being compassionate to others. So we basically have the skill in place. It's just a matter of remembering and giving ourselves permission to turn that inward. Mm -hmm. There are meditations you can do. There are practices you can do. Uh, something as simple as touch, because we evolved to interpret touch as a signal of care. I mean, think about babies, right? That's mm -hmm. the main way parents communicate care and support to infants before they can speak. We respond to our own compassionate touch by like, increasing heart rate variability, lowering cortisol, feeling cared for and soothed. So there's actually a lot of ways we can practice self-compassion. It's not very difficult. And it actually doesn't take more effort. It takes more effort to criticize yourself. It's mm -hmm. actually, you know, feels easier to be warm and supportive to, toward yourself, but we, we're just not in the habit of it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that, I think, you know, that uh, we'd brought it actually up at the happiness summit we just got finished with last week um, was like 80% of our thoughts are negative. Right. So if you have, I can't even remember what the number was, um, 60,000 thoughts a day or 80,000 thoughts a day, you know, six or 80% of them are negative. So it's kind of neurologically wired into our head kind of exactly. because of, because of the ancient reptilian brain, right. And how right. it, how it functions. So, uh, um, how do we get, how do we, you know, I would think self-compassion and having positive thoughts about yourself are probably important. Um, so how, how do we, how yeah, do we unwire well, or rewire? Well, self-compassion works a different way than let's say positive thinking does. Okay. You actually aren't changing the content of your thoughts. You aren't pretending that you're happy when you are. You aren't, mm. you, you aren't saying like, and every day and everyone getting stronger and stronger, even if you aren't. What you're doing is you're embracing the negative and warmth, care, acceptance. Mm. And th that's actually a positive emotion. So mm -hmm. compassion is a rewarding emotion. It's meaningful it's positive. It's, it's, it's different than like some of the happy things right. like joy, but it is actually a positive emotion. It's a rewarding emotion, brain scans so that it, it activates the reward centers of the brain. 
So what you're doing with compassion is even though you're aimed at suffering kind of by definition, mm -hmm. what you're holding the suffering in, which is loving, connected presence, warmth, kindness, these are actually positive emotions. So it kind of transforms your experience. So you're still feeling the negative emotion, but you aren't just feeling the negative emotion. You're also feeling the love and the presence and the sense of connection that's relating to the negative emotion. And that's why self-compassion is actually equally strongly linked to less than psychopathology, depression, stress, shame, et cetera, as well as increased happiness, hope, optimism, all, all the positive psychology constructs. So it kind of does a, it's, it's not papering over, it's transforming. It's transforming our relationship to what is without having to deny what is. Mm -hmm. And so, and you'd mentioned that you're a researcher and, and obviously you've been doing this a long, you know, not, well, a significant, two decades at least, right? That's a long time, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so what was, what was your biggest surprise in the research that you didn't expect or just became like, oh, wow, I did, you know, what was kind of, what came out of the research that was kind of surprising or eye-opening, I guess? Yeah, um, a few things. One is that if you just look at the simple correlation between self-compassion and compassion for others, that means individuals, if you're high in one, are you high in the other? Um, actually, because so many people, there's a lot of people, way more than you would think, who are very compassionate to others and not compassionate at all mm -hmm. to themselves. Right. They don't necessarily go hand in hand. Although what we do know is if you train someone to be more self-compassionate, they increase in compassion for others. And really importantly, they're able to sustain giving compassion to others without burning out. But that was kind of surprising at first. I thought, well, yeah, people with more self-compassion also have compassion for others. It's not the case just because there are so many people who are compassionate to others and not themselves. Um, I would say the other surprising thing is that it's a lot easier than I thought it would be to increase self-compassion. Mm. Right? So you can just do a simple mood induction where you have people write a paragraph with mindfulness, just kind of validating, be you know, aware of what's happening, turning toward it remembering their common humanity. These are the three components of self-compassion, mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness. Mm. So they write a paragraph remembering that they aren't alone. This is part of being human. There's nothing wrong with them. We're having mm -hmm. this thought or this experience. And then we have them write some words of kindness to themselves like they would write to a good friend. And it's actually surprisingly simple to induce a self-compassionate frame of mind. Again, I think because we're already used to doing it for others. Mm. That was good. I thought it'd be harder than it was. It's actually not very difficult. It's more, mm. again, more thing is remembering to do it. The biggest thing is remembering to do it and giving yourself permission mm. to be kind to yourself. Those seem to be the biggest blocks. Mm. And when you say trained people and you have a program, but when you say train people, is that actually what you're training them to do? Yeah. So basically, so self-compassion is a skill, right? It's not just a personality trait. I mean, you can look at it as some people are naturally more self-compassionate than others, but it's actually a practice. It's something you do. It's something in the moment, maybe a feeling of shame arises and then you can say, okay, well, what am I going to do with this? Okay. I'm going to turn toward it. I'm going to be present with it. I'm going to remind myself that this is only human and I'm going to be kind to myself because it hurts. So mm -hmm. it's something that you can actually do um, and so it, it, in terms of research, just like I say, experimentally, you can have people write to themselves self-compassionately, and that really changes things. Um, one study found that if, they wrote, if people wrote a self-compassionate letter once a day for a week, they reduced depression for three months and increased happiness for six months. 
Wow. It's pretty powerful medicine. Um, but we also have a lot of interventions, like training programs, like the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, for instance, mm -hmm. that actually teaches people the skill of how to do it. And these, these skills are maintained over time. Um, so it, that, that's the good news. Even people who are very hard on themselves can learn to be more self-compassionate. Hmm. Interesting. And, and, and so do you have, because um, I always love to hear, and I, uh, and I think other people do, but examples of kind of some of your students or yourself kind of walking through that process and kind of the before and after um, situation or effects of what was happening? Uh, well, yeah, I think pretty much anyone who takes the Mindful Self-Compassion course gets gets transformed mm -hmm. in some way. I remember one, one woman who took our course, um, kind of talking about fierce self-compassion. She was a pretty first, fierce personality, very strong personality. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, she got some blowback for that. And she herself, she, she didn't really like that aspect of herself. Um, and she said she'd always say like, you bitch, and like, you know, you're a bitch, and, call me. <laughs> and after learning self-compassion, she kind of was able to, first of all, see some of the positive aspects of that side of her personality, mm -hmm. that kind of very powerful personality, and learn to relate to the same traits um, in a kinder way. So what she started saying is things like, whoa, tiger. You know? <laughs> so it's like you know so it's it's not pretending it's not there but just right. relating to it and that actually helped her um and kind of embrace some of the, the positive sides of her fierce personality um and also just not you know give herself so much pain by calling herself name calling herself names right um and and then you developed a scale and if i and i think i've seen there's a two different versions of it one that goes to 20 and one that goes to 12? Uh, not really. Okay. All right. <laughs> there's, a, there's a 26 item version. Oh, 26. I'm sorry. 26. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. The 26. Revising it. We're going to have a six item version. I saw oh, perfect. that one, but yeah, to make it even shorter, but you can take it on my website and uh, it, uh, you can get your score if you're interested. Selfcompassion.org. Selfcompassion.org. And what's the six version? What is it actually? What What's in the six? Well, so um, the categories, the, I guess. Well, so they have one. So if you, if the self compassion actually has six subscales, and, and the mm -hmm. positive, so compassionate and non compassionate responding are both represented. So, how often are you kind to yourself? How often do you judge yourself? How often do you remember the common humanity? How often do you feel isolated when you suffer? Um, how often are you mindful towards your negative thoughts and emotions? And how often do you like feel over identified with them? So each of those are measured. So in the six item version, there's one question for each of those subscales. In, mm. in the 12 item version, there's two. And the 26 <laughs> item version, there's yeah, four or five, depending on subscale. So yeah, that's basically so, so for today's hectic world, you said we're going to streamline this. So it's six. So yeah, somebody can well, get a lot them. of researchers, they don't, you know, participant fatigue, they don't want to give their people a lot of fatigue. So we picked the, the six items that were the highest loading on the, the the kind of general factor of self-compassion. So and, and, the, data, the data is pretty good. So I'm supposed to be working on that. I haven't started yet, but I got all the data. I just have to find it out. <laughs> well, and so let's talk about the data. So of the six categories, where are typically people the lowest? Uh, where do they score the lowest on that if you're looking at the, the average? Yeah, so, so people, um, they all tend to cohere together, right? So mm -hmm. they seem to operate as a system. So in other words, um, if you're low in mindfulness, you're likely to also be low in self-kindness and a sense of common humanity. 
mm-hmm. right? Or um, conversely, if you're high in self-judgment, you also tend to be high in feelings of isolation and over-identification. Mm. So they, they tend to cohere as a system. There are some individual differences, but they, they kind of engender each other. So for instance, part of being kind to yourself is reminding yourself, oh, it's only human to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Right? And part of also being kind to yourself is the willingness to turn toward and look toward the, the tough stuff. So that, that it, there's, it's, a, it's a kind of complicated scale because these dimensions, they aren't exactly the same, but they tend to go together. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like lemonade. You know, you got sugar, you got water, you got lemon. They do tend to cohere in this thing called lemonade. Right. These main ingredients. Um, but I would say, having said that, um, I would say the, the one that seems to be most tricky for people is actually common humanity. This, and because we're so focused, um, especially in the West, on being individuals, we just, it just we feel so separate from others. Um, once we start, you know, it can be even hard for people to think about common humanity because immediately they start comparing themselves to others. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, my suffering is not as bad as every people are in the war in Ukraine, you know, so right. instead of just recognizing that, yeah, of course, people, some people suffer more than others. It's not saying that but just recognizing that this is part of being human. There's nothing abnormal about having challenging situations come up, Mm -hmm. right? It actually is what connects you to others. The fact that human beings in various degrees, in various ways, one thing that unites us is imperfection and struggle, right? That's Mm -hmm. that's what it definitely, if you look in the dictionary into what it means to be human, you're going to find that there, right? but people immediately want to go into comparison mind or, you know, I, do I suffer more? Do I suffer less? You no, know, is it really the case that other people feel the way I do? It certainly doesn't feel that way. Um, but of course, once you, it's really a type of wisdom, common humanity, maybe which is why it's a little more challenging. It mm-hmm. allows us to see the bigger picture and our place in the larger whole. Uh, hmm. But it's a little tricky. And when you dive into the research, do you dive, I mean, is, is part of that understanding the person's background? I mean, are you like, so meaning, I guess where I'm going with this is, do typically people who believe in something greater than themselves, a higher power, God, whatever you want to, however it looks for them, do they typically seem to have, I would, I would think they, they would have more compassion. Is that the case or, or not necessarily? Well, uh, we haven't looked, for instance, specifically at belief in God. Religion mm-hmm. doesn't seem to actually have necessarily big place. For instance, people in Catholic, you know, the kind of it depends on uh-huh. Protestantism. A lot of religions actually have this idea of original sin, or some mm-hmm. people can feel it's actually hubristic to love themselves. That's something that Jesus does, or you know, mm-hmm. God does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't necessarily seem to impact it. At least I haven't mm-hmm. seen any research that shows that it does. I mean, it's more just a type of wisdom. Um, you could even be an atheist, but believe that, you know, we're all interconnected. We all impact right. each other. We're all human beings on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And as we talk about all I of this. I will say, though, yeah, go ahead. One, one thing that makes a difference is early family history. Okay. What's that mean? Okay. So basically, so if your parents made you feel worthy, they met your needs consistently, you're more likely to be self-compassionate. In other words, you feel you're worthy of compassion mm. and you tend to meet your own needs consistently, which is part of self-compassion. Mm-hmm. But if your parents really criticized you or abusive in some way, or just kind of neglectful, then you get the message growing up that you aren't worthy of kindness and warmth and care. 
Um, and that it can actually even be scary for some people to give themselves compassion because if the way they cope with their early childhood is to close down their hearts, mm. they're opening their hearts and like all the pain comes out that's been tampered, tamped down. Mm. So people, especially with early family trauma or, or um, complex trauma, uh, we actually advise people to learn self-compassion with the support of a therapist. Mm-hmm. So it can kind of open Pandora's box for some people. Mm. Part of the process is actually not a bad thing, but uh, you may need to go a little more slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it's more challenging. I mean, the good news is, is research shows that it's a great way to heal from your past wounds. Right. You give right. yourself compassion, compassion. You know, maybe not being cared for the way you should have been by your mm-hmm. parents. And you can actually learn to give yourself what your parents didn't give you. Mm-hmm. But it, it can just a slightly slower road. People with happy, warm, supportive parents, it comes a little more naturally. Right. And that makes sense. I mean, ultimately, our parents all screwed us all up, right? I mean, that's where we can look back to is like, yeah, but some people more than others. <laughs> right, exactly. Some people more than it's the degrees of screwed up that we got. The so, degrees of screwed up, yes, absolutely. Right. And so, you know, part of it is I'm uh, because of this podcast and some of the guests we've had on, I'm always thinking now because I have two kids. Uh, it's like, okay, what do I need to, how do I need to work on myself? Because I don't want to screw my kids up any more than they're going to be screwed. I mean, I know we all have to have stuff to work with in our life, some richness, some, some grit uh, to speak. um, But it's like, okay, how can I, how can I, how can I limit it as much as possible? So they're not taking on all my hurts and issues from my childhood, right? How do I not pass yeah, that and forward. One of the best things to do mm-hmm. is actually to model self-compassion. What we know from the research is that it's contagious. So if you hear oh, someone being self-compassionate, then you tend to be more self-compassionate. If you're, if you're critical in front of your kids, if you think, mm-hmm. oh, I'm such an idiot, maybe hoping they'll give you compassion, what right. you're actually doing is giving the message that this is how we're supposed to treat ourselves. So if you take the time to model mm-hmm. out loud self-compassion, like, oh, I've so, oh man, I can't believe I broke that. I love that. That was, oh, well, it happens. It's only human. You know, it's okay. You know, th- that type of kind of warm, supportive, taking responsibility, of course, for things, but also um, being understanding and supportive towards yourself and warm towards yourself. It's really great to model that for our kids. And when, since we're talking about kids, how, um, how, so modeling would be one way. Are there other ways that, that you, you've found effective to help our kids be compassionate for themselves so that they can start to be I mean, because I know kids can be hard. Kids can be hard on themselves too. No, they, they can. And again, in some ways, like my son's harder on himself. He never learned mm-hmm. it from me, but just because of that threat defense system, it's like a natural mm-hmm. instinct. You want to like fight the problem. And when you're the problem, you want to fight yourself. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just kind of a natural um, biological instinct. But yeah, well, about by about seven, one of the main tasks of development is friendship formation and understanding what it means to be a good friend. And that's a really great way to introduce the concept of self-compassion to kids. And you talk about what does it mean to be a good friend? And, and what does it mean to be a good friend to yourself? And if a kid's very self-critically, because they would you say that to your friend? They go, no, no, no. You know, why not? Well, they'd be sad or they cry. Well, the effect's going to be any different for you. So in other words, you can use the context of friendship to understand both what's What's effective self-talk and also what's not effective self-talk. Okay. By about age seven, kids can start understanding these concepts, which is, which is good. Yeah. My my son's seven. And so I've noticed, I've noticed that in him, he's actually, uh, uh, thank goodness and, and all things in the world that he's actually fairly self 
uh, what do I would say? He, he does a pretty good, he's got emotional intelligence. I'll just put it that way. I mean, I think we've spoken so much positivity into him that even when we do, I, I call it win the parent of the year award. So like, that's when I screw up, right? That's when I lose my cool or say something I should. And I'm like, oh gosh, I won the parent of the year award again. But, but I think we've poured enough love and enough compassion and just yeah. affirming that he's good. That, so now he'll, he, he truly, you, you can see him th start to think about stuff, right? Start to contemplate on stuff of what does that mean? And, and, you know, we're reading a book right now. And at the end of it, there's quite or each story. There's like, a, a, you know, a thoughtful story and then a question about how does that show up in your life? And so he's starting to, starting to kind of look at and connect the dots. Oh, what does that mean? You know, if, 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 if this has happened in the story, how's that show up? You know, what have you done? That's like that. How do you be nice? Like one of the stories we read was talking about um, being good to other people, right. uh, like in the story, somebody was being good to somebody else. I was like, well, how do you, how are you good to other people? And so he kind of, he was he, at first, the answer is always, well, I don't know. And I'm like, well, okay. All right. Well, if we think about it a little bit, so it's, it, it is kind of neat to watch that development and see, um, I guess, see how much more I think advanced he, he is than I would have been, I think at that same age, I think, I don't know. Right. I mean, but yeah, I think, you know, teaching self-compassion to kids is probably one of the most important things that we can do. Right. Oh, yeah, especially if you get in there before adolescence, because mm. adolescence is really when the identity formation starts and, and, and kids can be really hard on themselves, you know, and they feel inadequate and insecure. Um, so having that tool in your tool bag to be warm, supportive, caring, you to have your own back mm -hmm. makes a huge difference to recognize that you may feel like you're the only one in the world, but actually you aren't the only one in the world mm -hmm. it's part of being human. Uh, so we've had a lot of, um, we have actually have a mindful self-compassion program for teens. Oh, okay. Usually successful. The teens love it. So they, they just taught it actually to a group of um, LGBTQI plus teens, yes. queer kids. Yes. Um, and it made such a big difference because, you know, all the shame that given by mm -hmm. society and all the ex mm -hmm. on top of adolescence, all the challenges of you know, right. being gender typical um, it just really made a difference in like their ability to handle the perceived rejections of others, their ability to be happy, not to be so full of, um, you know, negative thoughts, mm -hmm. uh, really powerful stuff, but for, for any team, but especially those who are marginalized, it's such an important tool to have to know what you're worth. Right. Yeah. And, and not, not based on self-esteem. See, the problem with self-esteem is that it's contingent. It's contingent on success. It's contingent on looking a certain way. It's contingent on people liking you. Self-compassion is not contingent. It's unconditional. You know, whether people, whether you look good or you don't look good, whether you succeed or fail, whether people like you or reject you, you are still worthy of a warm, caring, compassionate response. Right. And I think self seems like an like a spare weather friend. Self-compassion is a, a stable friend. So if you have that going into the teen years. It's really going to serve you. Hmm. We do have a question. So this is from Joanna Brandy, who is actually kicking off tomorrow our um, 21 Days of Happiness Challenge in our community. So we're super excited to have her host that. Um, and so Joanna asked, can you speak to the difference between self-compassion and self-indulgence? I'm never sure where the line is. Yeah, well, the line's really easy. So self-indulgence, by definition, means short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term harm. Hmm. Self-compassion is 
you desire health and well-being for yourself. You don't want to harm yourself. The whole thing is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. So um, giving yourself pleasure, if it's harmful, you don't do it if you're self-compassionate. So this, the research shows, for instance, people like eat better, need more nutritious food, they exercise more, they go to the doctor, they practice safe sex. So, you know, the idea, just like the difference between an indulgent parent and a compassionate parent. Compassion doesn't mean letting your kid do everything they want if they're harming themselves. I'm not compassionate. You're harmful if you do that. And so really that, that's the line. Um, and so if you're, if you're trying to, you know, and sometimes you may fool yourself. You may think, oh, I'm just being self-compassionate by eating that, you know, eighth cookie or whatever it is. I deserve it. And just asking yourself, is this harming me or, or not? And if it's harming you, then you don't want to do it. That's not self-compassionate. And it sounds like from what you're saying there that you're also not defining self and uh, I mean, you're, you're defining self-indulgent as harmful versus self-indulgent, something you do for yourself. That's more like self-compassion. Is that accurate? Well, self-care. So self-care self yeah. is um, so our behaviors that um, can help, right, help you rest, help you recharge the things like doing yoga, eating well, hanging out with friends. Um, so self-care is a subset of self-compassion. Self-compassion is larger because it's a lot of it's about how we deal with our emotions, mm. right? So self-care, you know, like for instance, you may not have time for self-care. Maybe you work three jobs, you don't have time to get a massage or hang out with your friends. And so, but at least you can have compassion for how overwhelmed and busy you are. And, you know, that will kind of at least help. Um, it won't do everything, of course, but it, but it will help you not be so overwhelmed by your negative thoughts and emotions when you give yourself that warmth. And that is back to kind of that three-step process that you talked about. Yes, be mindful of what's happening, remembering that you aren't alone, that you're part of a larger whole, you're connected to others, and being kind, warm, supportive, caring, asking what do I need. And remember, sometimes what we need is acceptance. Sometimes what we need is action. So in terms of, um, you know, like for instance, drawing boundaries, women, they're, you know, they're supposed to work 40 hours or more and also be super parents and do everything. So the ability to say no to people and to draw boundaries and to say, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do because I need to care for myself. You know, that's a really important part of self-compassion. Even getting angry is it can be an act of compassion if the anger is aimed at preventing harm. You know, if you're just if you're just causing people and insulting them or being mean, that's not right. compassionate. But if it's like, no, like the Me Too movement, for instance, that's a self-compassion movement. People mm -hmm. saying, no, it's not okay. You can't, you can't treat me this way. So that's um, all of it self-compassion, really. And then um, also, how do, we, how, do you, or how do you frame this for the workplace? So how do you frame kind of self-compassion in the workplace? Because I, I mean, I have uh, interests in, in healthcare and assisted living centers and, and nursing homes. And so, you know, we had high, high degree of burnout in the, in the staff. And so how, how best would we integrate kind of, how do you, how do you implement, integrate compassion into yeah. the workplace? Yeah. So we actually developed a six week protocol training program for healthcare workers oh, where all the practices are done on the job. You cannot ask a healthcare worker to like get up early and meditate for half an hour every day. It's right. Just, you know, they just right. way too busy. So they're all practices we did on the job at the workplace. Um, and we found it reduced burnout, it reduced feelings of stress and depersonalization. It increased satisfaction with what their jobs, what they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and the workplace, the data is also really good. Um, 
So in other words, uh, there's less uh, burnout at work if you're self-compassionate, better work-life balance, uh, less turnover, greater workplace productivity. Um, leaders who are self-compassionate and display that to their employees are actually more respected by their employees. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's uh, I think we'll get more data once we start seeing that self-compassion is good for the bottom line. <laughs> right. I think corporations will start coming on board. And there is some data suggesting that it does increase productivity. I mean, think about it. Here's the big thing. How do we learn? How do we learn and grow it in business? Well, we have a lot of failures. That's, that's what you do, right. right? You fail, right. you fail, you fail, you get it right. You fail, you fail, you get it right. But then you have to be open to learning from failure. If you just shame yourself for failure, if it's a culture where you aren't allowed to fail, how in the world are you going to learn? And so right. the biggest gift self-compassion, I think, does in, in the workplace is helping people to motivate themselves from encouragement, acceptance of failure. How do we learn from failure? And again, we, we want to succeed not because we're horrible and failures if we don't, but simply because we're, we care. We want to reach our goals. And that more positive type of motivation is actually much more effective and sustainable, reduces performance anxiety, which also mm-hmm. undermines your ability to do your best. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the fact that it's really good for motivation, it's a more effective motivator than self-criticism is probably in the end of the, at the end of the day, what's really going to sell it in the workplace mm-hmm. because people want to succeed in the workplace. And uh, definitely. And, and to your point, if it reduces turnover, that, that's a huge turnover right yeah reduces um sick sick leave days as one study that shows that and and because it doesn't matter if you work at this place or that place if you if you're in any in any job if you're just moving from job to job that's not going to teach you how to give self-care or right or compassion you're carrying it with you it's like it's Mm -hmm. unless you just happen to get lucky enough to work for an organization that already has protocols and already has things in place for that right which i think is probably just now starting i don't i don't think that that's widespread um widespread out there of having these programs in place i guess is my point. right the well-being programs and by yeah. the way we also have to be careful we don't want to just like throw some self-compassion at over stress and fairly treated workers and say deal right. with it yeah, yeah your self-compassion part of it is saying i'm sorry these working conditions are not acceptable you know right if you're going on strike yes. with an act of self-compassion right you know of course it all depends on the circumstance but Sure. And so what were a few of those things, especially for in the healthcare space, what were a few of those things that people could do at the job just for that, that compassion practice? Oh, so, so one, um, one practice we have when they're, cause uh, when, when you're in the presence of someone who's in physical pain or mental mm-hmm. pain, it's also true for therapists. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're empathic and a lot of people who go into healthcare are empathic, uh, your mirror neurons are actually resonating with the pain of others. Mm-hmm. If you're mm-hmm. a sensitive healthcare worker, you feel what other people are feeling. Actually, right. you aren't that sensitive, but the human brain does this. Mm-hmm. So we teach people as they're at the bedside or with the patient, to use the breath. You have to breathe in and out or else you'll die. Right. So that metaphorically is breathing in for yourself, kind of acknowledging I feel overwhelmed. This is really hard. You know, it's kind of validating their own mm-hmm. kind of empathic pain. But mm-hmm. also breathing out for the other, validating the pain of the person they're caring for. So it's a way that instead of a lot of the ways people deal with being overwhelmed or burnt out at work, you just shut off or you disconnect. Right. You disconnect. Right. So this is a way of staying in the game, giving yourself compassion, giving the other compassion, sometimes focusing mainly on yourself if you really, really need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a, and I used to use that with my son all the time, right? So I'm not a healthcare worker, but I'm a parent. My son's autistic. 
Mm. When he used to have these horrific tantrums, I would use this breath practice. I would mainly breathe in for myself. I focused primarily on my own, you know, the fact mm-hmm. that I was so overwhelmed or so difficult when he, especially when he was screaming. And what I found is I could actually regulate his emotions. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. So he would start to calm down when I would start to calm down, when I would get frustrated or especially if it's like, if maybe I triggered a tantrum by something I did, if I was just really self-critical, that wouldn't help. What really mm-hmm. helped is if I was self-compassionate, I would start to calm down and he would resonate with me. And then I could actually turn toward him more explicitly. And I think whether your kid's autistic or not, or right. there's a patient or just, mm-hmm. you know, human beings, we impact each other emotionally. Right. So what we, how we cultivate our internal mind state in terms of, you know, are we full of loving connected presence or just like shame and blame and, you know, anger at ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's what we give to every interaction we have throughout the day. That's what, that's what other people's mirror neurons are resonating with. Right. About that really changes things, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, it brought back a memory for me of, I used to, for, I don't know, five years, seven years, I used to lead a meditation wouldn't really call it a class. I just say a meditation. And then it was just open to the public, whoever showed up. So I had people all the way from you know CEOs of companies to homeless people show up throughout the, the time I did it. And I, I, use, I would always notice I would just sit at the front of the room and I would just close my eyes. And the more calm I became, and so everybody would be talking, everybody would be coming in and talking. And, and because, you know, some people met each other and, you know, through the group. And so, and so they'd be talking, sharing, and, and the more calm I would get and the more I would use my breath just to calm my whole system around the quieter and quieter the room would get until finally there was silence. And then I would open my eyes and we would talk about whatever was, you know, there to talk about. And then we do a formal meditation. And so, yeah, that made me remember that, you know, you know, approaching something with anger, approaching something with heightened emotion always is a recipe for, for disaster, right? I mean, there's nothing good that's going to come out of when, when it's coming from a place of anger, that's not um, when, triggered, I guess a better way to say is triggered. Right. Yeah. There's reactive anger, which isn't right. so helpful. And there's anger right. aimed at like a purpose, yes. not at people. Yes. Right. Just saying, you know, like I'm going to harness this anger to say, you know, social justice, for instance, or global warming. Right. You're angry yes. at what's happening <laughs> in our world. Yes. You know, you're probably asleep. All right. <laughs> Again, it's situations and behaviors, not not people. But as, in terms of from the human level, we're, we're all doing the best we can, you know, based on our history and our culture and our upbringing and what we know at the time. Right. Oh, very and very insightful. <laughs> Well, is there any anything else we wanted to touch on today um, that you just want to make sure that people understand about compassion versus maybe um, some of these other things uh, that that the work really spoke to that you said, you know, gosh, if everybody just knew this, it would just help 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 them, I guess, transition more into compassion. Um, well, maybe if it's just the one thing we haven't really touched on is resilience. Mm-hmm. Okay. Self-compassion makes them going to make them soft. It, it actually is one of the most powerful sources of strength, coping, and resilience we have. Whether you're dealing, whether you're a combat veteran, whether you're dealing with COVID or raising a special needs kid or going through a divorce, study after study shows when things are really difficult and challenging, if mm-hmm. we're supportive with ourselves, if we're our own ally, not our, an enemy, if we have our own back, if we're kind, warm, understanding, we're going to be much stronger, more able to get through. And so it's, it's like this amazing resource we have in our back pocket. We don't even know it's there. You know, all you have to do is start treating yourself like you would treat a good friend you cared about. So I get it's not rocket science. Uh, and life's 
life's tough right now, right? Mm -hmm. With the world around us, a lot of a lot of challenge. And I think we really need self-compassion to, to help us get through it. Mm, beautiful. Well said. Well, thank you, Dr. Kristen Neff, for coming on our show today. Thank you for agreeing to be live. And certainly, you know, this will be available on our podcast and in our community. So uh so people can watch it when it's convenient for them. But thank you so much. And, you know, as things evolve, if you'd love, like to come back on and speak to the group, and we'd love to have you come back on, because obviously this is uh, what the world needs right now is more and more self-compassion uh, so that we can be compassionate towards others. So thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for being a part of the Bright Vibe podcast. For more information, go to brightvibe.com. That's B-R-I-T-E by vibe.com. Thank you for listening. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.